Part Ten of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Ten. She was abreast of it now, and I thought that she would stop again, but no. She swerved rigidly. At the moment there was no one near her. She had that bit of pavement to herself with inanimate slowness as if moved by something outside herself a confounded convict fine burst out with the sound of that word offending my ears i saw the girl extend her arm push the door open a little way and glide in i saw plainly that movement the hand put out in advance with the gesture of a sleepwalker she had vanished her black figure had melted in the darkness of the open door for some time fine said nothing and i thought of the girl going upstairs appearing before the man were they looking at each other in silence and feeling they were alone in the world as lovers should at the moment of meeting but that fine forgetfulness was surely impossible to anthony the seaman directly after the wrangling interviews with fine the emissary of an order of things which stops at the edge of the sea how much he was disturbed i couldn't tell because i did not know what that impetuous lover had had to listen to going to take the old fellow to sea with them i said well i really don't see what else they could have done with him you told your brother-in-law what you thought of it i wonder how he took it very improperly repeated fine his manner was offensive, derisive, from the first. I don't mean he was actually rude in words. Hang it all, I am not a contemptible ass. But he was exulting at having got hold of a miserable girl. It is pretty certain that she will be much less poor and miserable, I murmured. It looked as if the exultation of Captain Anthony had got on Fine's nerves. I told the fellow very plainly that he was abominably selfish in this, he affirmed unexpectedly. You did? Selfish? I said, rather taken aback. But what if the girl thought that, on the contrary, he was most generous? What do you know about it? growled Fine. The rents and slashes of his solemnity were closing up gradually, but it was going to be a surly solemnity generosity i am disposed to give it another name no not folly he shot out at me as though i had meant to interrupt him still another something worse i need not tell you what it is he added with grim meaning certainly you needn't unless you like i said blankly little fine had never interested me so much since the beginning of the de Barral anthony affair when i first perceived possibilities in him the possibilities of dull men are exciting because when they happen they suggest legendary cases of possession not exactly by the devil but anyhow by a strange spirit i told him it was a shame said fine even if the girl did make eyes at him but i think with you that she did not yes a shame to take advantage of a girl's a distressed girl that does not love him in the least 
"'You think it's so bad as that?' I said. "'Because you know I don't.' "'What can you think about it?' he retorted on me with a solemn stare. "'I go by her letter to my wife.' "'Ah, that famous letter.' "'But you haven't actually read it,' I said. "'No, but my wife told me. "'Of course it was a most improper sort of letter to write considering the circumstances.' It pained Mrs. Fyne to discover how thoroughly she had been misunderstood. But what is written is not all. It's what my wife could read between the lines. She says that that girl is really terrified at heart. She had not much in life to give her any very special courage for it, or any great confidence in mankind. That's very true. But this seems an exaggeration i should like to know what reasons you have to say that asked fine with offended solemnity i really don't see any but i had sufficient authority to tell my brother-in-law that if he thought he was going to do something chivalrous and fine he was mistaken i can see very well that he will do everything she asks him to do but all the same it is rather a pitiless transaction. For a moment I felt it might be so. Fine caught sight of an approaching tram-car, and stepped out on the road to meet it. "'Have you a more compassionate scheme ready?' I called after him. He made no answer, clambered on to the rear platform, and only then looked back. We exchanged a perfunctory wave of the hand. We also looked at each other, he rather angrily, I fancy, and I with wonder. I may also mention that it was for the last time. From that day I never set eyes on the fines. As usual, the unexpected happened to me. It had nothing to do with Flora de Barral. The fact is that I went away. My call was not like her call. Mine was not urged on me with passionate vehemence or tender gentleness made all the finer and more compelling by the allurements of generosity, which is a virtue as mysterious as any other, but having a glamour of its own. No, it was just a prosaic offer of employment on rather good terms which, with a sudden sense of having wasted my time on shore long enough, I accepted without misgivings, and once started out of my indolence I went, as my habit was, very, very far away, and for a long, long time, which is another proof of my indolence. How far Flora went, I can't say, but I will tell you my idea. My idea is that she went as far as she was able, as far as she could bear it as far as she had to. Part two, The Night. Chapter one, The Ferndale. I have said that the story of Flora de Barral was imparted to me in stages. At the stage I did not see Marlowe for some time. At last, one evening rather early, very soon after dinner, he turned up in my rooms. I had been waiting for his call, primed with a remark which had not occurred to me till after he had gone away. 
I say, I tackled him at once, how can you be certain that Flora de Barral ever went to sea? After all, the wife of the captain of the Ferndale, the lady that mustn't be disturbed, of the old shipkeeper, may not have been Flora. Well, I do know, he said, if only because I have been keeping in touch with Mr. Powell. You have, I cried. This is the first I hear of it. And since when? Why, since the first day. You went up to town, leaving me in the inn. I slept ashore. In the morning Mr. Powell came in for breakfast, and after the first awkwardness of meeting a man you have been yarning with overnight had worn off, we discovered a liking for each other. As I had discovered the fact of their mutual liking before either of them, I was not surprised. And so you kept in touch, I said. It was not very difficult. As he was always knocking about the river, I hired Dingle's sloop-rigged three-tonner to be more on an equality. Powell was friendly, but elusive. I don't think he ever wanted to avoid me but it is a fact that he used to disappear out of the river in a very mysterious manner sometimes a man may land anywhere and bolt inland but what about his five-ton cutter you can't carry that in your hand like a suitcase then as suddenly he would reappear in the river after one had given him up i did not like to be beaten that's why I hired Dingle's decked boat. There was just the accommodation in her to sleep a man and a dog. But I had no dog friend to invite. Fine's dog, who saved Flora de Barral's life, is the last dog friend I had. I was rather lonely cruising about. But that, too, on the river has its charm sometimes. I chased the mystery of the vanishing Powell dreamily looking about me at the ships thinking of the girl flora of life's chances and do you know it was very simple what was very simple i asked innocently the mystery they generally are that i said marlowe eyed me for a moment in a peculiar manner well i have discovered the mystery of powell's disappearances the fellow used to run into one of these narrow tidal creeks on the Essex shore. These creeks are so inconspicuous that till I had studied the chart pretty carefully I did not know of their existence. One afternoon I made Powell's boat out heading into the shore. By the time I got close to the mud-flat his craft had disappeared inland. But I could see the mouth of the creek by then. The tide being on the turn, I took the risk of getting stuck in the mud suddenly and headed in. All I had to guide me was the top of the roof of some sort of small building. I got in more by good luck than by good management. The sun had set some time before. My boat glided in a sort of winding ditch between two low grassy banks. On both sides of me was the flatness of the Essex march, perfectly still. All I saw moving was a heron. He was flying low and disappeared in the murk. Before I had gone half a mile I was up with the building, 
the roof of which I had seen from the river. It looked like a small barn. A row of piles driven into the soft bank in front of it and supporting a few planks made a sort of wharf. All this was black in the falling dusk, and I could just distinguish the whitish ruts of a cart-track stretching over the marsh towards the higher land far away. Not a sound was to be heard. Against the low streak of light in the sky I could see the mast of Powell's cutter moored to the bank some twenty yards, no more, beyond that black barn or whatever it was. I hailed him with a loud shout, got no answer. After making fast my boat just astern, I walked along the bank to have a look at Powell's. Being so much bigger than mine, she was aground already. Her sails were furled. The slide of her scuttle-hatch was closed and padlocked. Powell was gone. He had walked off into that dark, still marsh somewhere. I had not seen a single house anywhere near. There did not seem to be any human habitation for miles. And now, as darkness fell denser over the land, I couldn't see the glimmer of a single light. However, I supposed that there must be some village or hamlet not very far away, or only one of these mysterious little inns one comes upon sometimes in most unexpected and lonely places. The stillness was oppressive. I went back to my boat, made some coffee over a spirit lamp, devoured a few biscuits, and stretched myself aft to smoke and gaze at the stars. The earth was a mere shadow, formless and silent and empty, till a bullock turned up from somewhere, quite shadowy too. He came smartly to the very edge of the bank, as though he meant to step on board, stretched his muzzle right over my boat, blew heavily once, and walked off contemptuously into the darkness from which he had come. I had not expected a call from a bullock, though a moment's thought would have shown me that there must be lots of cattle and sheep on that marsh. Then everything became still as before. I might have imagined myself arrived on the desert island. In fact, as I reclined smoking, a sense of absolute loneliness grew on me. And just as it had become intense, very abruptly and without any preliminary sound, I heard firm, quick footsteps on the little wharf. Somebody coming along the cart-track had just stepped at a swinging gate onto the planks. That somebody could only have been Mr. Powell. Suddenly he stopped short, having made out that there were two masts alongside the bank where he had left only one. Then he came on silent on the grass. When I spoke to him he was astonished. "'Who would have thought of seeing you here?' he exclaimed, after returning my good evening. I told him I had run in for company. It was rigorously true. "'You knew I was here?' he exclaimed. "'Of course,' I said. "'I tell you I came in for company.' "'He is a really good fellow,' went on Marlow, "'and his capacity for astonishment is quickly exhausted, it seems.' 
it was in the most matter-of-fact manner that he said come on board of me then i have here enough supper for two he was holding a bulky parcel in the crook of his arm i did not wait to be asked twice as you may guess his cutter has a very neat little cabin quite big enough for two men not only to sleep but to sit and smoke in we left the scuttle wide open of course as to his provisions for supper they were not of a luxurious kind he complained that the shops in the village were miserable there was a big village about a mile and a half it struck me he had been very long doing his shopping but naturally i made no remark i didn't want to talk at all except for the purpose of setting him going and did you set him going i asked i did said marlow composing his features into an impenetrable expression which somehow assured me of his success better than an air of triumph could have done you made him talk i said after a silence yes i made him about himself and to the point if you mean by this said marlow that it was about the voyage of the ferndale then again yes i brought him to talk about that voyage which by the by was not the first voyage of flora de Barral. the man himself as i told you is simple and his faculty of wonder not very great he's one of those people who form no theories about facts straightforward people seldom do neither have they much penetration but in this case it did not matter i we have already the inner knowledge we know the history of flora de Barral. we know something of captain anthony we have the secret of the situation the man was intoxicated with the pity and tenderness of his part oh yes intoxicated is not too strong a word for you know that love and desire take many disguises i believe that the girl had been frank with him with the frankness of women to whom perfect frankness is impossible because so much of their safety depends on judicious reticences i am not indulging in cheap sneers there is necessity in these things and moreover she could not have spoken with a certain voice in the face of his impetuosity because she did not have time to understand either the state of her feelings or the precise nature of what she was doing had she spoken ever so clearly he was i take it too elated to hear her distinctly i don't mean to imply that he was a fool oh dear no but he had no training in the usual conventions and we must remember that he had no experience whatever of women he could only have an ideal conception of his position an ideal is often but a flaming vision of reality to him enters fine wound up if i may express myself so irreverently wound up to a high pitch by his wife's interpretation of the girl's letter he enters with his talk of meanness and cruelty like a bucket of water on the flame clearly a shock but the effects 
of a bucket of water are diverse they depend on the kind of flame a mere blaze of dry straw of course but there can be no question of straw here anthony of the ferndale was not could not have been a straw-stuffed specimen of a man there are flames a bucket of water sends leaping sky-high we may well wonder what happened when after fine had left him the hesitating girl went up at last and opened the door of that room where our man i am certain was not extinguished oh no nor cold whatever else he might have been it is conceivable he might have cried at her in the first moment of humiliation of exasperation oh it's you why are you here if i am so odious to you that you must write to my sister to say so i give you back your word but then don't you see it could not have been that i have the practical certitude that soon afterwards they went together in a hansom to see the ship as agreed that was my reason for saying that flora de barral did go to sea yes it seems conclusive i agreed but even without that if as you seem to think the very desolation of that girlish figure had a sort of perversely seductive charm making its way through his compassion to his senses and everything is possible then such words could not have been spoken they might have escaped him involuntarily observed marlow however a plain fact settles it they went off together to see the ship do you conclude from this that nothing whatever was said i inquired i should have liked to see the first meeting of their glances upstairs there mused marlow and perhaps nothing was said but no man comes out of such a wrangle as fine called it without showing some traces of it and you may be sure that a girl so bruised all over would feel the slightest touch of anything resembling coldness she was mistrustful she could not be otherwise for the energy of evil is so much more forcible than the energy of good that she could not help looking still upon her abominable governess as an authority how could one have expected her to throw off the unholy prestige of that long domination she could not help believing what she had been told that she was in some mysterious way odious and unlovable it was cruelly true to her the oracle of so many years had spoken finally only other people did not find her out at once i would not go so far as to say she believed it altogether that would be hardly possible but then haven't the most flattered the most conceited of us their moments of doubt haven't they well i don't know there may be lucky beings in this world unable to believe any evil of themselves for my own part i'll tell you that once many years ago it came to my knowledge that a fellow i had been mixed up with in a certain transaction a clever fellow whom i really despised was going around telling people that i was a consummate hypocrite 
he could know nothing of it. It suited his humour to say so. I had given him no ground for that particular calumny. Yet to this day there are moments when it comes into my mind, and involuntarily I ask myself, what if it were true? It's absurd, but it has on one or two occasions nearly affected my conduct. And yet I was not an impressionable ignorant young girl. I had taken the exact measure of the fellow's utter worthlessness long before. He had never been for me a person of prestige and power, like that awful governess to Flora de Moral. See the might of suggestion? We live at the mercy of a malevolent word, a sound, a mere disturbance of the air, sinks into our very soul sometimes. Flora de Baral had been more astounded than convinced by the first impetuosity of Roderick Anthony. She let herself be carried along by a mysterious force which her person had called into being, as her father had been carried away out of his depth by the unexpected power of successful advertising. They went on board that morning. The Ferndale had just come to her loading berth. The only living creature on board was the shipkeeper, whether the same who had been described to us by Mr. Powell or another, I don't know, possibly some other man. He, looking over the side, saw, in other words, the captain come sailing round the corner of the nearest cargo shed in company with a girl. He lowered the accommodation ladder down onto the jetty. "'How do you know all this?' I interrupted. Marlow interjected and impatient. "'You shall see by and by.' Flora went up first, got down on deck, and stood stock-still till the captain took her by the arm and led her aft. The ship-keeper let them into the saloon. He had the keys of all the cabins and stumped in after them. The captain ordered him to open all the doors, every blessed door, staterooms, passages, pantry, fore-cabin, and then sent him away. The Ferndale had magnificent accommodation. At the end of a passage leading from the quarter-deck there was a long saloon, its sumptuosity slightly tarnished, perhaps, but having a grand air of roominess and comfort. The harbour carpets were down, the swinging lamps hung, and everything in its place, even to the silver on the sideboard. Two large stern cabins opened out of it, one on each side of the rudder casing. These two cabins communicated through a small bathroom between them, and one was fitted up as the captain's stateroom. The other was vacant, and furnished with armchairs and a round table, more like a room on shore, except for the long curved settee following the shape of the ship's stern. In a dim inclined mirror, Flora caught sight down to the waist of a pale-faced girl in a white straw hat trimmed with roses distant shadowy as if immersed in water and was surprised to recognize herself in those surroundings they seemed to her arbitrary bizarre strange captain anthony moved on and she followed him he showed her the other cabins he talked all the time 
loudly in a voice she seemed to have known extremely well for a long time and yet she reflected she had not heard it often in her life what he was saying she did not quite follow he was speaking of comparatively indifferent things in a rather moody tone but she felt it round her like a caress and when he stopped she could hear alarming in the sudden silence the precipitated beating of her heart the ship-keeper dodged about the quarter-deck out of hearing and trying to keep out of sight at the same time taking advantage of the open doors with skill and prudence he could see the captain and that girl the captain had brought aboard the captain was showing her round very thoroughly through the whole length of the passage far away aft in the perspective of the saloon the shipkeeper had interesting glimpses of them as they went in and out of the various cabins crossing from side to side remaining invisible for a time in one or another of the staterooms and then reappearing again in the distance the girl always following the captain had her sunshade in her hands mostly she would hang her head but now and then she would look up they had a lot to say to each other and seemed to forget they weren't alone in the ship he saw the captain put his hand on her shoulder and was preparing himself with a certain zest for what might follow when the old man seemed to recollect himself and came striding down all the length of the saloon at this move the shipkeeper promptly dodged out of sight as you may believe and heard the captain slam the inner door of the passage after that disappointment the shipkeeper waited resentfully for them to clear out of the ship it happened much sooner than he had expected the girl walked out on deck first as before she did not look round she didn't look at anything and she seemed to be in such a hurry to get ashore that she made for the gangway and started down the ladder without waiting for the captain what struck the shipkeeper most was the absent unseeing expression of the captain striding after the girl he passed him the shipkeeper without notice without an order without so much as a look the captain had never done so before always had a nod and a pleasant word for a man from this slight the shipkeeper drew a conclusion unfavorable to the strange girl he gave them time to get down on the wharf before crossing the deck to steal one more look at the pair over the rail the captain took hold of the girl's arm just before a couple of railway trucks drawn by a horse came rolling along and hid them from the shipkeeper's sight for good next day when the chief mate joined the ship he told him the tale of the visit and expressed himself about the girl who had got hold of the captain disparagingly she didn't look healthy he explained shabby clothes too he added spitefully the mate was very much interested he had been with anthony for several years and had won for himself in the course of many long voyages a footing of familiarity which was to be expected with a man of anthony's character 
but in that slowly grown intimacy of the sea which in its duration and solitude had its unguarded moments no words had passed even of the most casual to prepare him for the vision of his captain associated with any kind of girl his impression had been that women did not exist for captain anthony exhibiting himself with a girl a girl what did he want with a girl bringing her on board and showing her round the cabin that was really a little bit too much captain anthony ought to have known better franklin the chief mate's name was franklin felt disappointed almost disillusioned silly thing to do here was a confounded old shipkeeper set talking he snubbed the shipkeeper and tried to think of that insignificant bit of foolishness no more for it diminished captain anthony in the eyes of a jealously devoted subordinate franklin was over forty his mother was still alive she stood in the forefront of all women for him just as captain anthony stood in the forefront of all men we may suppose that these groups were not very large he had gone to sea at a very early age the feeling which caused these two people to partly eclipse the rest of mankind were of course not similar though in time he had acquired the conviction that he was taking care of them both the old lady of course had to be looked after as long as she lived in regard to captain anthony he used to say that why should he leave him it wasn't likely that he would come across a better sailor or a better man or a more comfortable ship as to trying to better himself in the way of promotion commands were not the sort of thing one picked up in the streets and when it came to that captain anthony was as likely to give him a lift on occasion as anyone in the world from mr powell's description franklin was a short thick black-haired man bald on the top his head sunk between the shoulders his staring prominent eyes and a florid colour gave him a rather apoplectic appearance in repose his congested face had a humorously melancholy expression the shipkeeper had given him up all the keys and having been chased forward with the admonition to mind his own business and not to chatter about what did not concern him mr franklin went under the poop he opened one door after another and in the saloon in the captain's stateroom and everywhere he stared anxiously as if expecting to see on the bulkheads on the deck in the air something unusual sign mark emanation shadow he hardly knew what some subtle change wrought by the passage of a girl but there was nothing he entered the unoccupied stern cabin and spent some time there unscrewing the two stern ports in the absence of all material evidences his uneasiness was passing away with a last glance round he came out and found himself in the presence of his captain advancing from the other end of the saloon franklin at once looked for the girl she wasn't to be seen the captain came up quickly oh you are here mr franklin 
and the mate said, "'I was giving a little air to the place, sir.' Then the captain, his hat pulled down over his eyes, laid his stick on the table and asked in his kind way, "'How did you find your mother, Franklin?' "'The old lady's first-rate, sir, thank you.' And then they had nothing to say to each other. It was a strange and disturbing feeling for Franklin. He, just back from leave, the ship just come to her loading berth, the captain just come on board, and apparently nothing to say. The several questions he had been anxious to ask as to various things which had to be done had slipped out of his mind. He too felt as though he had nothing to say. The captain, picking up his stick off the table, marched into his stateroom and shut the door after him. Franklin remained still for a moment, and then started slowly to go on deck. But before he had time to reach the other end of the saloon, he heard himself called by name. He turned round. The captain was staring from the doorway of his stateroom. Franklin said, Yes, sir. But the captain, silent, leaned a little forward, grasping the door-handle. So he, Franklin, walked aft, keeping his eyes on him. When he had come up quite close, he said again, Yes, sir, interrogatively. Still silence. The mate didn't like to be stared at in that manner, a manner quite new in his captain, with a defiant and self-conscious stare, like a man who feels ill and dares you to notice it. Franklin gazed at his captain, felt that there was something wrong, and, in his simplicity, voiced his feelings by asking point-blank, "'What's wrong, sir?' The captain gave a slight start, and the character of his stare changed to a sort of sinister surprise. Franklin grew very uncomfortable, but the captain asked negligently, "'What makes you think that there is something wrong?' "'I can't say exactly. You don't look quite yourself, sir,' Franklin owned up. "'You seem to have a confoundedly piercing eye,' said the captain, in such an aggressive tone that Franklin was moved to defend himself. "'We have been together now over six years, sir, so I suppose I know you a bit by this time. I could see there was something wrong directly you came on board.' "'Mr. Franklin,' said the captain, we have been more than six years together, it is true, but I don't know you for a reader of faces. You are not a correct reader, though. It's very far from being wrong, you understand? As far from being wrong as it can very well be. It ought to teach you not to make rash surmises. You should leave that to the shore people. They are great hands at spying out something wrong. I dare say they know what they have made of the world. A damn poor job of it, and that's plain. It's a confoundedly ugly place, Mr. Franklin. You don't know anything of it. Well, no, we sailors don't. Only now and then one of us runs against something cruel or underhand, enough to make your hair stand on end. And when you do see a piece of their wickedness, you find that to set it right is not so easy as it looks. Oh, I called you back to tell you that there will be a lot of workmen, joiners and all that sent down on board first thing tomorrow morning to start making alterations in the cabin. 
you will see to it that they don't loaf. There isn't much time. Franklin was impressed by this unexpected lecture upon the wickedness of the solid world surrounded by the salt, uncorruptible waters on which he and his captain had dwelt all their lives in happy innocence. What he could not understand was why it should have been delivered, and what connection it could have with such a matter as the alterations to be carried out in the cabin. The work did not seem to him to be called for in such a hurry. What was the use of altering anything? It was very good accommodation, spacious, well-distributed, on a rather old-fashioned plan, and with its decorations somewhat tarnished. But a dab of varnish, a touch of gilding here and there, was all that was necessary. As to comfort, it could not be improved upon by any alterations. He resented the notion of change, but he said dutifully that he would keep an eye on the workmen if the captain would only let him know what was the nature of the work he had ordered to be done. "'You'll find a note of it on this table. I'll leave it for you as I go ashore,' said Captain Anthony hastily. Franklin thought there was no more to hear, and made a movement to leave the saloon. But the captain continued after a slight pause. "'You will be surprised, no doubt, when you look at it. There'll be a good many alterations.' It's on account of a lady coming with us. I am going to get married, Mr. Franklin. Chapter 2 Young Powell Sees and Hears You remember, went on Marlowe, how I feared that Mr. Powell's want of experience would stand in his way of appreciating the unusual. The unusual I had in mind was something of a very subtle sort. The unusual in marital relations. I may well have doubted the capacity of a young man too much concerned with the creditable performance of his professional duties to observe what in the nature of things is not easily observable in itself, and still less so under the special circumstances. In the majority of ships a second officer has not many points of contact with the captain's wife. He sits at the same table with her at meals, generally speaking. He may now and then be addressed, more or less kindly, on insignificant matters, and have the opportunity to show her some small attentions on deck, and that is all. Under such conditions, signs can be seen only by a sharp and practiced eye. I am alluding now to troubles which are subtle, often to the extent of not being understood by the very hearts they devastate or uplift. Yes, Mr. Powell, whom the chance of his name had thrown upon the floating stage of that tragicomedy, would have been perfectly useless for my purpose if the unusual of an obvious kind had not aroused his attention from the first. We know how he joined that ship so suddenly offered to his anxious desire to make a real start in his profession. He had come on board breathless with the hurried winding up of his shore affairs, accompanied by two horrible night-birds, escorted by a dock policeman on the make, received by an asthmatic shadow of a shipkeeper, warned not 
to make a noise in the darkness of the passage because the captain and his wife were already on board that in itself was already somewhat unusual captains and their wives do not as a rule join a moment sooner than is necessary they prefer to spend the last moments with their friends and relations a ship in one of london's older docks with their restrictions as to lights and so on is not the place for a happy evening still as the tide served at six in the morning one could understand them coming on board the evening before just then young powell felt as if anybody ought to be glad enough to be quit of the shore we know he was an orphan from a very early age without brothers or sisters no near relations of any kind i believe except that aunt who had quarrelled with his father no affection stood in the way of the quiet satisfaction with which he thought that now all the worries were over that there was nothing before him but duties that he knew what he would have to do as soon as the dawn broke and for a long succession of days a most soothing certitude he enjoyed it in the dark stretched out in his bunk with his new blankets pulled over him some clock ashore beyond the dock gate struck two and then he heard nothing more because he went off into a light sleep from which he woke up with a start he had not taken his clothes off it was hardly worth while he jumped up and went on deck the morning was clear colourless grey overhead the dock like a sheet of darkling glass crowded with upside-down reflections of warehouses of hulls and masts of silent ships rare figures moved here and there on the distant quays a knot of men stood alongside with clothes-bags and wooden chests at their feet others were coming down the lane between tall blind walls surrounding a hand-cart loaded with more bags and boxes it was the crew of the ferndale they began to come on board he scanned their faces as they passed forward filling the roomy deck with the shuffle of their footsteps and the murmur of voices like the awakening to life of a world about to be launched into space far away from the clear glassy stretch in the middle of the long dock mr powell watched the tugs coming in quietly through the open gates a subdued firm voice behind him interrupted his contemplation it was franklin the thick chief mate who was addressing him with a watchful appraising stare of his prominent black eyes you'd better take a couple of these chaps with you and look out for her aft we are going to cast off yes sir powell said with proper alacrity but for a moment they remained looking at each other fixedly something like a faint smile altered the set of the chief mate's lips just before he moved off forward with his brisk step mr powell getting up on the poop touched his cap to captain anthony who was there alone he tells me that it was only then that he saw his captain for the first time the day before in the shipping office what with the bad light and his excitement at this berth obtained as if by a brusque and unscrupulous miracle did not count he had then seemed to him much older and heavier 
he was surprised at the lithe figure broad of shoulder narrow at the hips the fire of deep-set eyes the springiness of the walk the captain gave him a steady stare nodded slightly and went on pacing the poop with an air of not being aware of what was going on his head rigid his movements rapid powell stole several glances at him with a curiosity very natural under the circumstances he wore a short grey jacket and a grey cap in the light of the dawn growing more limpid rather than brighter powell noticed the slightly sunken cheeks under the trimmed beard the perpendicular fold on the forehead something hard and set about the mouth it was too early yet for the work to have begun in the dock the water gleamed placidly no movement anywhere on the long straight lines of the quays no one about to be seen except the few dockhands busy alongside the ferndale knowing their work mostly silent or exchanging a few words in low tones as if they too had been aware of that lady who mustn't be disturbed the ferndale was the only ship to leave that tide the others seemed still asleep without a sound and only here and there a figure coming up on the forecastle leaned on the rail to watch the proceedings idly without trouble and fuss and almost without a sound was the ferndale leaving the land as if stealing away even the tugs now with their engines stopped were approaching her without a ripple the burly-looking paddle-boat sheering forward while the other a screw smaller and of slender shape made for her quarter so gently that she did not divide the smooth water but seemed to glide on its surface as if on a sheet of plate glass a man in her bow the master at the wheel visible only from the waist upwards above the white screen of the bridge both of them so still-eyed as to fascinate young powell into curious self-forgetfulness and immobility he was steeped sunk in the general quietness remembering the statement she's a lady that mustn't be disturbed and repeating to himself idly no she won't be disturbed she won't be disturbed then the first loud words of that morning breaking that strange hush of departure with a sharp hail look out for that line there made him start the line whizzed past his head one of the sailors aft caught it and there was an end to the fascination to the quietness of spirit which had stolen on him at the very moment of departure from that moment till two hours afterwards when the ship was brought up in one of the lower reaches of the thames off an apparently uninhabited shore near some sort of inlet where nothing but two anchored barges flying a red flag could be seen powell was too busy to think of the lady that mustn't be disturbed or of his captain or of anything else unconnected with his immediate duties in fact he had no occasion to go on the poop or even look that way much but while the ship was about to anchor casting his eyes in that direction he received an absurd impression that his captain he was up there of course was sitting on both sides of the aftermost skylight at once 
he was too occupied to reflect on this curious delusion this phenomenon of seeing double as though he had had a drop too much he only smiled to himself as often happens after a grey daybreak the sun had risen in a warm and glorious splendour above the smooth immense gleam of the enlarged estuary wisps of mist floated like trails of luminous dust and in the dazzling reflections of water and vapour the shores had the murky semi-transparent darkness of shadows cast mysteriously from below powell who had sailed out of london all his young seaman's life told me that it was then in a moment of entranced vision an hour or so after sunrise that the river was revealed to him for all time like a fair face often seen before which is suddenly perceived to be the expression of an inner and unsuspected beauty of that something unique and only in its own which rouses a passion of wonder and fidelity and an unappeasable memory of its charm the hull of the ferndale swung head to the eastward caught the light her tall spars and rigging steeped in a bath of red gold from the waterline full of glitter to the trucks slight and gleaming against the delicate expanse of the blue time we had a mouthful to eat said a voice at his side it was mr franklin the chief mate with his head sunk between his shoulders and melancholy eyes let the men have their breakfast bosun he went on and have the fire out of the galley in half an hour at the latest so that we can call these barges of explosives alongside come along young man i don't know your name haven't seen the captain to speak to since yesterday afternoon when he rushed off to pick up a second mate somewhere how did he get you young powell a little shy notwithstanding the friendly disposition of the other answered him smilingly aware somehow that there was something marked in his inquisitiveness natural after all something anxious his name was powell and he was put in the way of this berth by mr powell the shipping master he blushed ah i see well you have been smart in getting ready the shipkeeper before he went away told me you joined at one o'clock i didn't sleep on board last night not i there was a time when i never cared to leave this ship for more than a couple of hours in the evening even while in london but now since he checked himself with a roll of his prominent eyes towards that youngster that stranger meantime he was leading the way across the quarter-deck under the poop into the long passage with the door of the saloon at the far end it was shut but mr franklin did not go so far after passing the pantry he opened suddenly a door on the left of the passage to powell's great surprise our mess-room he said entering a small cabin painted white bare lighted from part of the foremost skylight and furnished only with a table and two settees with movable backs that surprises you well it isn't unusual and it wasn't so in this ship either before it's only since he checked himself again yes here we shall feed you and i facing each other for the next twelve months or more god knows how much more 
the boatswain keeps the deck at mealtimes in fine weather. He talked not exactly wheezing, but like a man whose breath is somewhat short, and the spirit, young Powell could not help thinking, embittered by some mysterious grievance. There was enough of the unusual there to be recognized even by Powell's inexperience. The officers kept out of the cabin against the custom of the service, and then this sort of accent in the mate's talk. Franklin did not seem to expect conversational ease from the new second mate. He made several remarks about the old deploring the accident. Awkward, very awkward this thing to happen on the very eve of sailing. Collarbone and arm broken, he sighed. Sad, very sad. Did you notice if the captain was at all affected? Eh? Must have been. Before this congested face, these globular eyes turned yearningly upon him. Young Powell, one must keep in mind he was but a youngster then, who could not remember any signs of visible grief, confessed with an embarrassed laugh that, owing to the suddenness of this lucky chance coming to him, he was not in a condition to notice the state of other people. "'I was so pleased,' To get a ship at last, he murmured, further disconcerted by the sort of pent-up gravity in Mr. Franklin's aspect. One man's food, another man's poison, the mate remarked. That holds true beyond mere victuals. I suppose it didn't occur to you that it was a damn poor way for a good man to be knocked out. Powell admitted openly that he had not thought of that. He was ready to admit that it was very reprehensible of him, but Franklin had no intention, apparently, to moralize. He did not fall silent, either. His further remarks were to the effect that there had been a time when Captain Anthony would have showed more than enough concern for the least thing happening to one of his officers. Yes, there had been a time. And mind, he went on, laying down suddenly a half-consumed piece of bread and butter, and raising his voice. Poor Matthews was the second man the longest on board. I was the first. He joined a month later, about the same time as the steward, by a few days. The boatswain and the carpenter came the voyage after. Steady men, still here. No good man need ever have thought of leaving the Ferndale unless he was a fool. Some good men are fools, don't know when they are well off. I mean the best of good men, men that you would do anything for. They go on for years, then, all of a sudden. Our young friend listened to the mate with a queer sense of discomfort growing on him, for it was though Mr. Franklin was thinking aloud, and putting him into the delicate position of an unwilling eavesdropper. But there was in the mess-room another listener, who was a steward, who had come in carrying a tin coffee-pot with a long handle, and stood quietly by, a man with a middle-aged sallow face, long features, heavy eyelids, a soldierly grey moustache, his body encased in a short black jacket with narrow sleeves, his long legs in very tight trousers, made up and agile youthful, slender figure. He moved forward suddenly, and 
interrupted the mate's monologue. More coffee, Mr. Franklin. Nice fresh lot, piping hot. I am going to give breakfast to the saloon directly, and the cook is raking his fire out. Now is your chance. The mate, who, on account of his peculiar build, could not turn his head freely, twisted his thick trunk slightly, and ran his black eyes in the corners toward the steward. "'And is the precious pair of them out?' he growled. The steward, pouring out the coffee into the mate's cup, muttered moodily but distinctly, "'The lady wasn't when I was laying the table.' Powell's ears were fine enough to detect something hostile in this reference to the captain's wife, for of what other person could they be speaking? The steward added with a gloomy sort of fairness, but she will be before I bring the dishes in. She never gives that sort of trouble. That she doesn't. No, not in that way, Mr. Franklin agreed, and then both he and the steward, after glancing at Powell, the stranger to the ship, said nothing more. But this had been enough to rouse his curiosity. Curiosity is natural to man. Of course, it was not a malevolent curiosity which, if not exactly natural, is to be met fairly frequently in men, and perhaps more frequently in women, especially if a woman be in question, and that woman under a cloud, in a manner of speaking. For under a cloud, Flora de Barral was fated to be even at sea. Yes, even that sort of darkness which attends a woman for whom there is no clear place in the world hung over her. Yes, even at sea. And this is the pathos of being a woman. A man can struggle to get a place for himself or perish, but a woman's part is passive. Say what you like, and shuffle the facts of the world as you may, hinting at lack of energy, of wisdom, of courage. As a matter of fact, almost all women have all that, of their own kind, but they are not made for attack. Wait, they must. I am speaking here of women who are really women. And it's no use talking of opportunities, either. I know that some of them do talk of it, but not the genuine women. Those know better. Nothing can beat a true woman for a clear vision of reality. I would say a cynical vision, if I were not afraid of wounding your chivalrous feelings. For which, by the by, women are not so grateful as you may think to fellows of your kind. Upon my word, Marlowe, I cried, what are you flying out at me for like this? I wouldn't use an ill-sounding word about women, but what right have you to imagine that I am looking for gratitude? Marlowe raised a soothing hand. There, there. I take back the ill-sounding word, with the remark, though that cynicism seems to me a word invented by hypocrites, but let that pass. As to women, they know that the clamour for opportunities for them to become something which they cannot be is as reasonable as if mankind at large started asking for opportunities of winning immortality in this world, in which death is the recondition of life. You must understand that I am not talking here of material existence. That naturally is implied, but you won't maintain that a woman who, say, enlisted, for instance, 
there have been cases, has conquered her place in the world. She has only got her living in it, which is quite meritorious, but not quite the same thing. All these reflections, which arise from my picking up the thread of Flora de Barral's existence, did not, I am certain, present themselves to Mr. Powell. Not the Mr. Powell we know taking solitary weekend cruises in the estuary of the Thames, with mysterious dashes into lonely creeks, but to the young Mr. Powell, the chance second officer of the ship Ferndale, commanded and for the most part owned by Roderick Anthony, the son of the poet, you know. A Mr. Powell much slenderer than our robust friend is now, with the bloom of innocence not quite rubbed off his smooth cheeks, and apt not only to be interested, but also to be surprised by the experience life was holding in store for him. This would account for his remembering so much of it with considerable vividness. For instance, the impressions attending his first breakfast on board the Ferndale, both visual and mental, were as fresh to him as if received yesterday. End of part 10